Welcome to episode 10 of the second series of What Were You Thinking in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. It is amazing how time flies in lockdown. Now, I am joined by one of my favourite politicians, Richard Bennion. Richard has been championing the environment for many, many years and was recently appointed to the House of Lords. Now, he served as minister at DEFRA and was a member of the Intelligence Security Committee of Parliament. And he was also one of the moving forces behind the UK's Blue Belt policy of marine protection on scale around the UK's overseas territories. And in the UK, he developed new measures for protection of rivers and catchments and the hardwiring of natural capital into government policy. He was also one of the rebel MPs who had the Conservative whip removed after voting against the government in September 2019. Now, you might remember that because that was quite a dramatic period just in the run-up to the last general election. He sat as an independent MP until the Prime Minister restored the whip, although by then he had already announced that he would be stepping down. Since leaving Parliament, he chaired the review into highly protected marine areas for the government, the Benyon Report, he is also a trustee of the brilliant Blue Marine Foundation and is a senior advisor to the excellent firm Seahorse Environmental, although I am quite biased because that is founded by my marvellous friend Isabella Gornall. But it is a brilliant conversation where Richard talks about security, environmental policy and how they overlap and also about protecting our oceans and what really actually happened when the Conservative MPs lost their whip. Richard Benyon, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? Very excited to have you on. Soon to be Lord Benyon. Uh, congratulations. Very excited to see that, I have to say, because when you left Parliament, I thought that was a real genuine loss to um, the Conservative Party, but also Parliament as a whole, because you're so vocal on the environment. So I'm glad you're going to be able to continue speaking on those issues from the other chamber. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure, a great pleasure to be here. I, um, uh, I've been a great fan of this podcast and I'm very honoured to be amongst such amazing luminaries as you've had on before. <laughs> and uh, yeah, now I, um, it's crazy, isn't it? When you think it was sort of 14 months ago, I was on the Conservative Party naughty step and... Um, mm. Uh, and I think it's very big of the Prime Minister to to have put me in the Lords. And I, I'll try and be worthy of it, because I, I think it's um, it's very important that there is a breadth of of thinking and understanding on different issues. And um, I, I'm looking forward to a new challenge. Absolutely. And uh, I'd love to, you know, I'm sure over the course of this conversation, we'll get to talk about you being on the naughty step <laughs> and um, what happened, etc. But to start off, um, why don't we find out, Richard, what object had a significant, uh, a significant impact on your thinking and your politics? Um, and um, as you know, later in the, the show, we'll discuss about the person and, and place as well. But why don't we start with an object? The hardest of the three. Well, it is a hard one, I, and I thought long and hard about it. But then I, I, I've recently found a diary I wrote when I was a 21-year-old platoon commander in Belfast, mm. and uh, we had to write something for our for, for our captain's exam that was coming up. And um, and rather than write, 
you know, boring treaties on different tactics or something. I just wrote about what I was experiencing and what I was thinking about. And, and finding it decades later and going back through it, I, I realised what a formative time your early 20s are. And when you're taken from the relative, you know, from, from, from the sort of idyll of leafy West Berkshire and um, a, a very happy, comfortable upbringing and then thrown into uh, the, the worst housing in Europe, the highest unemployment, the lowest life expectancy, the most terrible social uh, social justice issues being thrown at you on a daily basis, all overlaid by, by terrorism as, as well. Just, it was an extraordinary experience for, for a young person. And uh, it's only reading this again, uh, it's made me realize why it actually probably was in large part responsible for um, eventually finding a, 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 a career in politics. Because so, how old were you when you started off? Well, I I, jo I joined my battalion age twenty one. Mm. Um, it had just been in Northern Ireland for a six month tour during the hunger strikes, and every single member of the battalion had been under fire, and it, they'd been down in the on the border in South Armagh, and they came back for four months. I joined them, and then they went back for two years. So I. I, I I arrived, took over a platoon of old sweats as a very young 21-year-old and found myself walking, uh, patrolling streets in, 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 in Belfast um, at that extraordinary moment. And, and, and that photographs in this diary of, of whole streets that had been burnt out in, in a decade actually before I was there. Um, and and my, my writing is quite sort of sympathetic to the Catholic communities which I, where I was where I was patrolling because um, I, even though some of them were shooting at me uh, I was I actually thought they'd had a pretty raw deal in history I mean you know that mm. you, you didn't get a job if you were a Catholic um, in, in the public sector you you didn't get your refuse collected as as frequently as as you did in other areas and uh, you know the the general uh, what you saw in people's eyes wasn't just a, a just poverty it was a poverty of aspiration there was no belief that anybody was going to do anything for them and you can understand why that manifests itself in certain um in certain ways and 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 what i was doing as a soldier there was like a sort of like the dutch boy with his with his finger in the in the dike you know i, I wasn't i wasn't solving the problem i was containing it and i was um you know it was actually politicians in the end who were going to be the ones that solved that problem. Mm. And that happened, you know, people of extraordinary courage, um, who many of whom, you know, had had first-hand experience of members of their family being taken out and murdered, sometimes in front of their eyes, mm. had to sit down with the representatives of the people who'd done that yeah. and work with them. And yeah. you know, that, when people say compromise is a dirty word in politics, I... You know, I totally disagree. And, and the, some of the bravest people in the world are those that are prepared to compromise and work, as they say in America, across the aisle. Um, and that's something I tried to take into politics and probably never achieved as much as I should. But it, 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 it was a profound experience for a young yeah. person to, to witness that. That is fascinating and um, so lovely that you've come across the diary again after so many years. And so, so in hindsight, it, you mentioned it, 
it sort of made you realize how those times, um, that period probably led you to go into politics. Um, how old were you when you, when you made that, that switch? Well, I, I had a father who was a, an MP and we had, we were, we, you know, we were a family, we are a family that talks about stuff, not, not in a boring <laughs> way. I mean, we might be talking about, um, you know, about X Factor one minute, but we are, we do talk about political issues and, um, and I was always encouraged to, and we had, a, I came from a big family, lots of different ideas, but I did not want to be an MP because uh, particularly in those days, it was a very uncomfortable um, life. My father was always exhausted and they worked through the night, many nights, uh, almost every week. Um, they had late sittings and he would always be absolutely gray with, with exhaustion. And, um, and then he'd have to drive to his constituency, which was, Milton Keynes, which was, um, you know, and then, uh, uh, um, but it, I, I love the way, the way he did the job. He, I mean, for example, I remember him telling me that um, somebody had complained to him that the council weren't cleaning out his gutters. And he said to him, well, are you, um, do you have a ladder? And he said, yes. He said, well, why don't, he said, well, it's not my job. It's the council's job. It's a council house. He said, oh, come on. And he drove to the man's house, got the ladder out and cleaned out his gutters. And I uh, and the man was absolutely amazed. Uh, but it was just his, so he had just this completely practical approach um, mm. and didn't have a side to him at all. Uh, and I went back many years later to, to, to go and visit Bletchley Park with him, um, which was in his what was, had been his constituency. And the man on the gate was a former Labour councillor. Um, in Bletchley, and he was so pleased to see my father. He was a total, you know, even though they were political opposites, he was absolutely. Um, and I thought to myself, "Gosh, that that you know that that is a good thing to be doing." Anyway, I, I mean, I actually got into politics much much later through an entirely tedious little local issue where I was living at the time in West Berkshire. The local, the the county council, conservative-run Berkshire county council would were proposing to do something really stupid. And I uh, complained to somebody and they said, well, why don't you fight the system from within and get elected onto the council? So I did. Um, I won by 22 votes. Um, uh, <laughs> Great. Uh, 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 in an election when they were wiped out everywhere and then uh, proceeded to be a councillor for four years and then got wiped out by a massive swing <laughs> in the sort of dark days of the Conservative uh, John Major's government. But, uh, but you got the hang of it. I got I got a bug, I suppose. A bug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's that's very interesting. And so which person would you say has had a particular impact on your thinking and possibly even politics? I am. Um, I, it's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, you, you know, I'd love to talk, talk about my father and the way that a lot of uh, people you've talked to, your parents do have a great influence. And, and, and my father was the most sort of wonderful politician and a great um, uh, practical thinker and, uh, and, and so sort of unideological. And he just, but he just had, was an instinctive person, an instinctive conservative. And he had great influence on me. But I, I suppose what really, you know, what's really sort of, consumed me in recent years has been issues around the environment, climate change. And one of the people that 
profoundly affected me was somebody who's long dead uh, called Aldo Leopold, who was uh, an American conservationist, um, lived and farmed. It was a great, he was a forester, really. Uh, in fact, he was a state forester of Wisconsin. He died in 1946, I think. And he wrote an amazing book called The Sand County Almanac, which is a series of essays. Uh, and it, 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 I, I always think he's the sort of granddaddy of modern conservation thinking. He believes in interventionism and, and, and that, you, that, you know, that human beings are sort of sold a pass on, on, on the planet. We can't just let, let things continue. You've got to intervene. Um, and it's been, we live in what's, this era is by, called by some the Anthropocene, which is the um, post-industrial revolution age of human manipulation of our environment, of, of our biosphere. Uh, and um, you know, what he argued was that if you want to save species, if you want to save uh, our planet, you've got to intervene, you've got to do stuff. And some people think, well, that what you're saying is, uh, is against things like rewilding. Actually, no. I mean, rewilding is, is an intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's a human action, which is changing the way we manage uh, land. And um, so I think even though he died um, in, in the early half of the last century, he had a profound influence on what is happening today. And, you know, just in, in, our, in our lifetimes, we've seen 70% of species uh, in decline, uh, cataclysmically in decline. We're seeing real, real issues of, um, of economic um, risk being caused by the way we've treated this planet. And we've got to intervene to do it. And I just think he was such an amazing thinker. Mm. It's such a small book, Sand County Almanac. You can read it very quickly. And it just had such a profound effect on me. And mm. I read it. I read it when I was environment minister. Literally. I was just going to ask, because like, how do you come, you know, you've got to come, you, you know, need to be pointed in the right direction to come across something like that. And so that was when you when you were an environment minister. Why do you think you were made environment minister? Is that because they knew you had an interest in it or? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a shadow. I was a shadow minister um, for wildlife. I can't remember what they called it. Wildlife fisheries and something else. David Cameron said, um, he said, I want you to do this job. And uh, I want you to, to get a, get us some sane policies for 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 to win the election, and um, and I immersed myself in it. But it, you know, of course, the luxury of opposition is that you talk about things, and you uh, the, the the hard bit comes when you get into government and you have to do it. Mm -hmm. And I really, I, I as as I got closer to the election, re realized that I you know, I might actually be pulling levers on the end of which you hope something was going to go clunk. Uh, I had to um, get more knowledgeable. And it was such an interesting time. And the Labour government had, uh, had instigated two really important pieces of work. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I sort of immersed myself in that um, and then had to sort of enact it, one of which was um, a, a thing called Making Space for Nature. Uh, which Professor Lawton's uh, report, which, um, you know, was a really important piece of work. And so reading stuff alongside that and getting myself uh, more knowledgeable. So I didn't just sit there like a, a gaping fish when the civil servants came into my office and said that this needed doing or that needed doing. I actually 
you know, and I, it's such an interesting subject. I, I consider myself to be a, a sort of like a practical environmentalist. I'm not a, uh, I was never somebody that went on marches or, um, uh, you, you know, virtue signaled in, uh, in certain ways about the environment. I just, I just mind about it. And I mm. would do, do stuff, um, whether it was at a low level and as a councillor or as a, as a land manager at home, uh, or whether it was, uh, you know, later in terms of being a, a, a politician or, and a minister, it, trying to keep it practical and fascinating people that I've met down this road. Um, and I verge from being extremely optimistic to being uh, very gloomy about the future. And um, I, I've got a sort of, I've got to sort of balance this bipolar approach to the, to, to, to the planet because actually we've got to be optimistic. And I think there's a reason to be so, but we've just got to get it right and time is short. It's interesting just hearing, you know, your experience as a shadow minister, bringing that to the table as a minister, because, you know, when the Conservative Party's been in, in government now for so long that... Um, you know, many people get reshuffled into a department and they might not have had the time or uh, to read up about it like you did. And that's obviously comes with a huge benefit that I've not really thought about before. So that's well, really see, it, was a, it was a really interesting time because we came in with the coalition government and uh, there, was, you know, there wasn't much difference between the Liberal Democrats and us on, on environmental policy. Um, and uh, I ha we... The, the officials at DEFRA knew what our program for government was. And we had, a, I really enjoyed that first bit of policy uh, creation. And we uh, produced a thing called the Natural Environment White Paper, which was uh, which really sort of rebooted our approach to conservation and to protection environment involving the public and school children and everything else in, in, in getting close to nature. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, we had to do pretty horrible things like cut jobs and you know and close down arms length bodies and various other things because we didn't any money uh but it was totally inspiring time the, what, what's really uh, difficult in government is the churn the churn of civil servants after i was there for about three three and a half years after about two years i was very often the longest serving person in the room discussing a particular issue yeah um because everyone had been moved on and yeah. you get this you get these real experts who you're absolutely dependent on suddenly they get transferred from fisheries to waste or to another department and it's just it, it, it's it's difficult to transact government with that churn in the civil service yeah totally totally and to my point earlier like it's hard enough for ministers going from you know changing so quickly but if you then also can't rely on civil servants being there for a considerable time, that, that does make, complicate things even further, definitely. And so one of the issues that um, you, you're still very active in, but at the time uh, did a lot around is protecting marine areas. Um, is that something that you did? Was that when you were minister already? Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a real example of, of, of compromising and cross-party working in, in politics because when I was the opposition spokesman, uh, the government were taking through the Marine and Coastal Access Act. Uh, and the marine part of that bill was so such a massive um, 
piece of legislation. And um, the minister, then minister, Hugh Aranka Davis, got me into his office. We worked through it. And, was, and there were bits where I, you know, I pushed the government, I opposed them on certain bits, I challenged them on other bits. But by and large, it was a fantastic piece of consensual working. 99% um, of the population won't have, <laughs> won't have known what was going on, uh, but it was it was actually really important. And, part, and then I was in government and I had to put it in place. And it was difficult, but we, 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 we did it. And um, I, it brought me into a great understanding and fascination for what's going on, what exists in our marine environment, the huge problems we, we're creating, uh, have created. And um, it, it delights me that issues, uh, that Blue Planet 2 and various things can suddenly mobilize the conscience of the nation in a way that no politician ever could. Uh, and, uh, and I sort of sense there's a momentum now to really tackle issues like plastics pollution and various other so after I left the government, I, I got involved with uh, marine issues. And I, one of the things I did was I wrote a pamphlet called uh, Blue Belt 2.0, which I got the then Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, to, to, um, to promote, to, to launch. And we had an amazing uh, launch in a committee room in, um, in um, Parliament. And I told him as we were walking in, he said, give me, give me a stat. I said, OK, a quarter of the world's penguins are British. He said, no, really? And I said, yes, yeah, they, they, on the South Sandwich Islands and uh, various other places. That, and, he, and he keeps quoting this now. Today, and he actually quoted it. I asked him his, the last question of the last parliament in PMQs. And it, and it, was, it came straight out. He absolutely loves the fact that Britain is responsible for... Uh, for over a quarter of the world's penguins. And um, we have to um, protect these areas. And he's really, he's really got this. And he's expanding Blue Belt uh, in, a, in a way that is absolutely fantastic. And we've got, to, we've got to applaud him for it. I think one of the great unsung policies of recent years, which is, uh, which is um, the Blue Belt policy. And Blue Belt is the protection marine areas around our overseas territories, currently that the size of India uh, are under protection, and that's about to nearly double. And it's absolutely amazing, it's huge. It's huge. And yeah. I know you've been uh, involved in this as well. And it... Well, I'm, I'm, I might put my foot in it now, but am I right in saying that Obama, President Obama, did a similar policy, but an area that wasn't as large as the UK government's one? But made a lot more noise about yeah. it and got global, rec you know, global news coverage. Whereas the British government sort of—I I don't know whether that was by choice—drove me really demented. Sort of... I mean, David David got elected as prime minister partly because he embraced the environment, and many people in constituencies mm. like mine said, "Yeah, we know we mind about immigration, Europe, but you know, we really mind about our future." And he tapped into that, but I couldn't get him. I love him as I do. I could not get him to talk about. It was the sort of love that dare not speak his name. And as you say, President Obama uh, protected an area around Hawaii, a postage stamp compared to what we were doing around our overseas territories. And ours was, you know, was shoved out in a sort of Friday, late Friday night press release yeah. from from a junior minister in the Foreign Office. Uh, you know, yeah. it just seems extraordinary that we have this ability Crazy, to, to, 
to denigrate ourselves, but never, ever big ourselves up when we do things like this. Yeah, no, because I, I remember that quite quite clearly because I was at Bright Blue at the time and obviously we were working on environmental issues and trying to prove that actually conservative voters do care about it, which polling showed that they did. Um, and there, there was another announcement, but I can't remember what it was, but it was a very significant one. And um, similarly, the government timed it on purpose on the same day as the... Um, United Nation, um, United States presidential election. So they knew they wouldn't get any coverage. Well, it, 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 I mean, I was in a, do you remember the, um, you know, one of the pillars of uh, of David Cameron's um, big society? I, as a minister, I uh, transferred British waterways from a government agency into a, the fourth or fifth largest charity in the country, and I we got you know millions of pounds of. Uh, of assets transferred over to it. I mean, it was a fantastic good news story. And I couldn't get anybody from number 10 to be interested. And, you know, this now one of the most successful charities in the country. And it always amazed yeah. me what we, when, what we think people mind about. Actually, people really do mind about the canal or the waterway close to where they live in the same way that they mind about mm. the verge or the view or the, you know, the local, local species that they see when they walk around. And we, we talk about the environment in such an, uh, uh, and policies in such an abstract sort of high level way. And we are not attached to how people in the real world think about these things. And, uh, you know, it was just an exam another example that we, we don't tap in, uh, in the way that popular culture can. And that's why things like Blue Planet 2 um, has made such a difference to marine conservation, bringing it back to that. So, um, and of course, the government today, I suspect, would probably make a lot more noise about it because the environment hmm. is now much higher on the agenda. Last year, you published the Benyon Review into highly protective marine areas. And as we just mentioned, the environment is higher on the agenda, but seas and fishing in particular have become quite topical during the Brexit negotiations. Um, tell us a bit more about the review. Yeah, well, um, Michael Gove got me to do it. It, it, it. I was still an MP when I started it. Every conceivable uh, thing that you could imagine to stop it happening took place. Um, you know, we had uh, an election. We had, uh, I was kicked out of the party. Uh, I, I left parliament, uh, the, um, we had Perda following the election. We had COVID, uh, you know, every conceivable thing. But we actually produced within a year, published on World Oceans Day, I think a really good report that uh, set out not only the intellectual basis for highly protected marine areas around our coastline, but also how to do it. And um, I, it frustrates me that, uh, you know, that the wheels government turned so slowly that we now got a pilot areas and it'll be you know but over the next decade you should see these areas uh, protected and what I've seen both in our inshore in our waters around the UK but also around the world the, the speed um, of that nature can recover from a, a completely degraded seascape to somewhere that is absolutely full of life is amazing and so I hope that Britain will come the place where people go to 
to see how to do this and that we will see this happening much more around the world and that the graph of decline of marine quality, marine species, marine ecosystems suddenly goes in the other direction. Mm. And you're also trustee of the Blue Marine Foundation, uh, right, which is dedicated to restoring the ocean to health by addressing overfishing. You know, for people who, like myself, who might not be an expert in this area, um, <laughs> what is, yeah, what, what is the, the crux of a problem? Blue is 10 years old. It was started while I was just after I'd been made minister. And, you know, there are a lot of NGOs out there that would wear the carpet of ministers to threadbare by constantly coming to see them. And, that, and see that is an, as an end in itself. What, what, where Blues, I felt, was different was that they were, were rooted in getting stuff done. Uh, and they, are, uh, they have had extraordinary success. And uh, nowhere more than, for example, the Lime Bay project, which um, is part of Dorset, which where there was a sort of awful conflict between fishermen and scientists and government and regulators and other fishermen coming in, destroying their, uh, you know, the reef and uh, this beautiful marine ecosystem. And now there's, thanks to Blue, thanks to Blue, there is a, uh, a recovering uh, area of extremely valuable ecosystem where the fishermen are happier because they have got control of it and they are making more money from what they catch. And, uh, you know, it is the most extraordinary example of a virtuous circle, but they're not, it's not just there. They, I think this blue belt policy I was speaking about earlier, blue was sort of fundamental in thinking it up, and driving it and working with government. And they're very good at hitting government when they need to be hit and putting their arm around government and helping them in the right way when that is the best approach. And I'm so enjoying being involved with them. It's a totally life-affirming experience being involved in oceans, restoration, protection, recovery. It's really, um, it's really one of the best things I'm doing at the moment. So what can consumers do? People who, you know, who care, but I've, you know, don't live by the sea or aren't fishermen or aren't a trustee of blue. <laughs> what, well, they, what can we do? They're in a very powerful position. Uh, not just uh, not as individuals, you know, what, what, what are we as individuals? But if you work together, if you say, when we go to the supermarket, we invest our environmental and social conscience with that label, whatever it is, Sainsbury's, Safeway, whatever. And we trust them to be, sell, to be putting stuff on the shelves that we believe is not damaging, is not using slave labor, is not using child labor, is not... Um, uh, you know, wrecking ecosystems. And if we hear that they are, we go somewhere else or we tell them, change this, take this off the shelf or we will not come here. And there is no greater leverage. There is no greater leverage than uh, a popular uh, power of the consumer. So look for the blue you know, look when you're buying meat, look for something that has the Union Jack on it, the red tractor, or when you're buying fish, look for something that has the, the proper designation of, of sustainability. And that, you know, that is, that is something we can all do, and we must. One of the other areas I know that you're interested in is international development. Um, and 
I think I'm right in saying in particular, obviously, but the role aid and international development can play in tackling climate change, but also protecting biodiversity around the world. Um, how did you get interested in international development? Was that through your time in Parliament? The, 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 there's, a, there's a sort of overlapping Venn diagram. Um, my interest in the environment, because climate change and issues like that. And then there's sort of security and defence, which is where I came from. And I was on the, the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee and the Defence Committee at different times. And I think there is a massive overlap here where, uh, where climate change uh, and, uh, the, and the environmental degradation become a risk escalator, as the Pentagon refers to it, where, where people are driven into poverty or driven to migrate and that brings instability in the world. And the best thing, the best thing that governments in rich countries can do can be to stabilize the environment in a way that allows communities to exist uh, in the long term. And that means water supplies, that means uh, education, that means empowering um, people who aren't currently empowered. Uh, it could be whole communities, it could be just be women, it could be... Um, children you know it is about encouraging a degree of stability in these areas which prevents conflict and warfare and famine and disease and it is it is so amazing to see what the British taxpayers um, relatively modest people think we pay an enormous amount it's about 1.4 percent of all the government spends every year gets spent in overseas aid but the bang we get for that buck and I you know I'm, I'm sad that it's going down for a year or so um, uh, but I hope it gets back goes back up because it, it's influence in uh, abroad not just at a government to government level but in terms of how it influences individuals and um, protects lives uh, by stabilizing uh, their ability to exist where they come from. And it's just, it's amazing to see. And as, as the minister, I was at an overseas role, a biodiversity champion role. And then since I left, I was a trade envoy. Uh, I've been, I led the UK delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly and various other things, which took me to some of the most troubled parts of the world. And I could see how, you know, it inspired, properly delivered overseas aid can really change a country mm. and, a, and a community and an area. That is a very interesting role. Uh, you've mentioned two very interesting roles there with NATO, uh, with NATO, but also the Intelligence and Security Committee. Uh, the latter, of course, which is not much is known about because obviously <laughs> for obvious reasons, but I don't know if there is anything you can share about uh, the committee and also your you know, the things you experienced and witnessed whilst uh, being on that part of that NATO delegation? Well, I used to really enjoy uh, the Intelligence and Security Committee because we'd go, th we'd go to this little place in somewhere in Westminster and um, you'd leave your telephone in a little metal box outside along with all your prejudices and your party labels and things like that. And it was the, probably the most collegiate cross-party um, organisation I was a member of. There were Labour MPs, there was a Scottish Nationalist, there, were, there was a cross-bencher uh, peer, there were 
conservatives and it was it, it was and we did good good work and what it did i mean i was i was a soldier in a peacetime army that occasionally went on operations and suddenly i found myself meeting young men and women in our intelligence services uh our intelligence agencies who are on operations 24 hours a day all year all the time and doing extraordinary things to keep us safe and i learned things that had happened and were going to ha or you know could have happened that were stopped and you know these are people you know i'm now 60 these are people in their 20s um clever creative brave and they're working now as we speak doing this and um it's something that we should feel extraordinary pride in um, so that you know that 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 has been fascinating. I I led the UK delegations in the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, which uh, which was a cross-party group. And uh, you know I'm a great believer in NATO. I think that it's been a force for good and needs um, every now and again needs a reboot, uh, along with all sorts of other things that need a reboot. Um, and so it was it was truly fascinating to to meet politicians from different parts of. Uh, of the alliance and to travel. I went to some pretty interesting parts of the world as well where NATO was doing some stuff. And um, so, yeah, it was fascinating. I, I, I speak um, a bit of French. And so it, I, I was that relatively rare thing of a British politician who could sometimes speak to another uh, person in their own language, which I was felt they appreciated. Well, we haven't, uh, we haven't covered a third um which is place yet of a third a third question um and so is there a place that you visited through that role of nato or is there a place that you've lived um that you think has had a real impact on on your um, you and your thinking it's a really hard one this <laughs> i thought about it long and hard um i i think that when i i think i'm going to choose somewhere in france i i'm a franco um, Francophile, and I, when I was about 18, I was sent after some pretty moderate exam results to go and learn French in a part of France that most Frenchmen have never heard of, let alone anywhere else. But basically, if you put your finger in the middle of France on a map, it's likely to be in a department called Allier. And you, tell, you say that to Frenchmen, they shrug their shoulders and shake their head, but it's absolutely beautiful. And it, I was sent to stay with this aged couple and I went to the local lycée and I le did learn French because nobody spoke English around there. And there was this extraordinary forest there called the Forêt de Trancé, which, had, um, which was utterly beautiful, full of these incredible oaks that went up like a sort of cathedral ceiling. And um, it was full of wildlife and it was just beautiful. And what amazed me was that it, it had been planted by a 17th century French statesman called Colbert. Um, and whenever I go to Paris, I go and look at his statue outside the Assemblée Nationale. He was a truly inspirational, uh, amazing person, a great thinker and reformed um, France under the um, you know, at the time of Louis XIV, uh, in terms of business, taxation, he great shipbuilder, he loved the arts, he, he was a great agriculturist, um, he did a lot to protect 
what we now call workers' rights. I'm, I'm not to the standard we have today, but you know, an amazing man. And he was such a visionary in that he planted these forests all over France because he wanted there to be ship, uh, wood timber to sustain a French Navy. Um, in, two centuries away or you know, 100 years after they were planted. And it was just such a piece of visionary thinking. And so I suppose that, um, you know, I, I, I think of it mainly because I just loved the place and could go and walk in it mm. and sit in it and look at wild boar or deer or bird life. Um, but also because it reminded me of this extraordinary person who did these amazing things for France. Yeah. That's interesting. So that links to quite a lot of what you said. So clearly that has had an impact on the rest of your life, not least <laughs> the link to the environment and wildlife, um, you know, being a minister for wildlife, um, but also being able to speak French when you're doing the, you know, part of a NATO delegation. So it's like full circle, really. So top marks. I, I, I remember I was seeing, I remember in the recent, negotiations over this deal, I was reminded of what it was like being in negotiation in Brussels. And when we got it, we had to reform the common fisheries policy. And it was, a, you know, I, I mean, it was just a nightmare. And we, we started with Britain being in a minority of one, and eventually we got everyone to sign up to it. And uh, I, the worst was a three shirter, as they call it, which was two nights and three days of constant negotiation. And um, we it ended up with us all meeting in plenary and agreeing, and except for the French minister who said, I must go and get the agreement of my prime minister before I put my hand up. So we all groaned at three o'clock in the morning. And he went out, as he went, as he went past me, I leant back and I said to him in my terrible French, if I rang my prime minister at three o'clock in the morning, I would not be a minister by four o'clock. And he gave me a wink. And... <laughs> which said to me, I'm not going to ring my prime minister. I'm just trying to show this bunch of Muppets that I'm, I'm not going to be an, you know, an easy bargainer. And, uh, you know, of course he came back saying, my prime minister has agreed. And so off we went. It just, <laughs> I, but it, it just reminded me uh, through all this torturous process that Lord Frost and others have been involved in. And, um, life is no, difficult. Fascinating. And so um, just building following up on the security angle, which is it's really interesting hearing you talk about, um, you know, your two interests and in security and and the environment and how they overlap. I think that that's that's something that you, you don't hear much about, although increasingly, I guess that's becoming more prominent. But one of the things you were heavily involved in as well as well is campaigning for the Magnitsky Act, which came into force uh, was it last year? Yeah. The year before? Yeah, that put me on the naughty step as well. Um, did it? Well, it, it did because um, the government had brought in part of the Magnitsky Act some time before, but it was dragging its heels on, on another bit. And then it, it, along came the money, launderings and, money laundering and sanctions bill. And um, the whips, rather stupidly, put my name on the bill committee. And in those days, we were a minority government. We had a majority of one on all bill committees. And so I started beavering away trying to get this Magnitsky provision put in. And the Foreign Office lawyers came to see me and said, well, you don't need it. And I said, well, if you don't need it, why is it not being implemented? Why are these crooks still allowed to come uh, 
let's 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 recap. Sergei Magnitsky was a, was a lawyer in in Russia, uh, and his client was someone called Bill Brado, one of my absolute heroes, who um, who and Sergei Magnitsky was suing uh, people who very close to Putin who had been corrupt and he was arrested and he was imprisoned and he was tortured and beaten and killed and he died in agony in a Russian prison and Bill has set about his life's work now to uh, impose across western nations uh, provisions in law to make it impossible for crooks to use the west to hide money gained uh, by illicit means and through human rights abuses. And so we, anyway, we, I had a big fight and I was lent on by various people. And eventually I didn't know what to do. I was about to think, am I going to have to rebel? Am I going to drive this through? And I was at the point of doing so. And then Putin poisoned the Skripals via his rather inept um, uh, uh, operatives who came to Salisbury. And such was the fury of um, the government at this, you know, utterly appalling and terrifyingly close to killing a lot of people um, incident that she said, we'll implement the full Magnitsky. And so... By she, you mean Theresa May. So it was implemented and um, Britain is now amongst those nations that have implemented it. It was a fascinating period. And I... And it, anybody wants to know about more about this should read Bill's book, uh, Red Notice. It's a, it's, it reads like a thriller, but it's true. And it's, um, it is still a consuming issue in my life because I, I just think they don't care. Uh, you know, they simply don't care. They, you know, they, they, mur they nearly murdered uh, Navalny, the leader of the opposition, using the same type of, uh, of nerve agent. Uh, Novichok, um, and they are, you know, there are plenty of other examples of where people have been uh, assassinated or nearly assassinated around the world, and they don't care. And we've got to make them care because it hurts them. And the way to hurt them is by stopping them using things like the City of London to invest ill-gotten gains. And we've got to, mm. you know, we've got to, the German government should now stop Nord Stream 2, should stop uh, this gas pipeline from Russia to, to Germany. Uh, that's the way to really bring about change in a, in a kleptocracy like Russia. Hmm. So which countries are yet to sort of follow, follow suit? So you mentioned Germany needing to do... Um, probably... it, it's, it's happening across Europe. Um, Australia is now in the process of implementing it. Uh, Canada has, United States has, all three Baltic states. Um, I, I think um, Bill's having mixed uh, reception when he takes it to Brussels and um, is looking to, but is looking to try and get the European Union to to to, to implement it. Uh, what's the what's the reason for the mix? Um, there, there are a whole host of reasons, I, 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 and and of course it's how it's implemented as well. It has to be effective, and that's why I had some sympathy with the Foreign Office lawyers who were trying to trying to find the right wording. Uh, so, what you really need is a list, a list, a sanctions list. Our sanctions used to be done through the European Union. Now, obviously, they're done by us, and we have to put people's names on that list uh, on the basis of evidence. And um, uh, it, 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 
it, it can be not just for Russian crooks, it can be the general in charge of uh, the human rights abuses against the Rohingya in uh, Burma, it can be uh, human rights abuses in Africa, it can, anybody who is involved in this kind of activity can be sanctioned in this way, which means that they cannot uh, use Western uh, finance systems or indeed property. And we, the, the amount of property in the UK that has been bought um, in, in recent decades by nefarious purposes, and they come to Britain because our land title is solid and it is a, a good place, a safe economy in which to do business. Uh, and that's, um, that's a good thing. That's great. But it, it should not be um, a place where bad money can be, uh, can be invested. Uh, and that's, that there are a number of very good pe journalists and good pieces of work that have been done recently, which have uh, shown how, uh, you know, how our good system of property law and uh, our stable investment in our, in our good economy has been misused and by malign forces, and we shouldn't be letting it happen. So looking at later this year, we've got uh, COP26, which the UK government is hosting, and COP15. What are you hoping to see? Um, and in particular, I guess, well, yeah, what are you, what are you hoping to see? Obviously, I'm hoping that the, that the main pillars of the Paris Accord are secured and if necessary reinforced to make sure that we can keep the world to 1.5 degrees and that is that there is no more important issue people talk about covid they'll talk and talk about brexit they can talk about anything else like those are all tiny pinpricks of importance and compared to this vital global um, risk which we're facing but i hope alongside this uh, and if people want to listen to wiser people than me, they should listen to people like Mark Carney's recent, recent wreath lectures. So to talk about, to look at this as an opportunity to reboot capitalism. The, the real ability to bring about environmental change and tackle climate change will come through markets, will come through business, getting, uh, uh, getting their heads around this and completely transforming their approach and that's why we're seeing in, in the city and elsewhere um, environmental social governance becoming such a big issue. And ESG funds are now uh, mm. yielding higher returns than non-ESG funds and those, those sorts of things. So I, I see this as an opportunity post the banking crisis, post COVID, post all the uh, awfulness that we've uh, experienced um, in, in recent years of a chance for business and capitalism to completely change the way we do things. Hardwiring sustainability and environmental protection into the way we produce stuff, the way we create things, the way we invest. Uh, and so when Trump, for example, says he's gonna reopen, uh, in his dying days of his presidency, he's gonna reopen the Arctic reserve for um, oil and gas exploration. He can say whatever he likes, but there is nobody who's going to finance that because they're not mm. going to be allowed to do it by their investors, by their employees, by their, um, you know, by the very basis of those banks or those 
mining companies or those drilling companies uh, because of their ESG commitments. So, mm. it, you know, business can be an absolute force for good here. Uh, and I, you know, I, I despair sometimes when I hear a rather overstatist approach to climate change. This is about motivating and directing uh, the power of, uh, of commerce to solve this problem. And when we do, we'll see a complete change in how, uh, how, we, how we manage this planet's resources. And how do we bring the public with us? I mean, in many ways, they obviously are through, you know, um, blue... Um, David Attenborough's um, documentaries, and but we've also seen obviously Extinction Rebellion uh, become more prominent. Although, I mean, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on it because obviously they've, in many ways, they've done. You know, you could argue they've done good for the cause, but they've also probably put lots of people off um, who you might want to bring with you. So, what are your views on on how we bring the public with us I- to COP? I, I, met, I met with Extinction Rebellion. I walked around uh, that part of London that they were occupying, chatting to people. And, um, uh, you know, there's some very impressive people involved in that. But like all of these slightly anarchic uh, movements, they get uh, hijacked or taken over by people who have another agenda or an extremist one. And it ends up doing harm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I sort of implored uh, someone I know is involved in, I said, you've got to understand it through the mindset of my constituents who are busy paying the mortgage, you know, for the roof over their head, getting their children to school, uh, you know, getting back in time for a meeting, whatever. And and when they see you stopping a tube tra- train from running, they just think, nah, you know, and, and it devalues the whole thing. So I, yeah. I, I th- I'm a great fan of you know, of trying to get people going. And I, I don't go into the sort of Greta Thunberg, you know, hating rhetoric. I actually think she she and many like her are are really important for popularizing this message and getting to, through to my generation uh, what young people are thinking. So uh, what, what, what for the future? I, I, I really want that great passion that we saw with Extinction Rebellion to be focused in a constructive way around COP um, and keeping world leaders' feet to the fire on this and to do so in a, in a, in a constructive way. You do not do that by burning a bus or, um, mm. you know, or, or trashing a newspaper office or whatever. It's about dialogue and it's about forceful dialogue and saying, you know, we're not going to go away. We really mind about this. So uh, it's a vain hope i'm sure the idiots will be out in force but uh, there is a vast sane group uh, of young climate activists uh, and i want them to be part of it i used to, to i used to make a point of talking to the school strikers every week every month when they were striking in in newbury and i'd say you know this is great you know are you are you aware are you aware of blue belt and they none of them had a clue about any of the things the government they, they used to say to me in absolute certainty the government are doing nothing you don't care about the environment so i'd sort of list it and we'd have a conversation and then i'd say what are you doing about the environment they go we're here aren't we i said no no you're you're not saving a single gram of carbon you're not sequestering anything <laughs> you're not yeah you know, let's go and pick up litter i'll come with you and they look 
sometimes they'd look at me in amazement. Let's go and, you know, let's set up a plastics recycling system for plastics that they can't, the council won't recycle. And they'd look at me in amazement. Um, but, you know, I love their passion. But, you know, again, I've always got frustration with people for whom shouting about something or talking about it is an end in itself. I want. Well, clearly, Richard, the apple doesn't fall far <laughs> from the tree. You sound very practical, just like like your dad uh, <laughs> from your earlier anecdote. But moving on to some juicy things, um, but, you know, the juicy, the juicy stuff. Um, I mean, you've mentioned Naughty Step quite a few times, but your departure from Parliament was quite a dramatic one in, in many ways. Obviously, you, you mentioned you were kicked out of a party, but then you were brought back in. But by that point, you had decided um, to call it a day and to, to stand down. And this was over Brexit. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear your, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, I, your, your, your version of the. Yeah, I mean, I, it sounds, it sounds so, um, it sounds like trying to remember a nightmare. I, when, the, when the result came through the referendum, I, I went into a sort of two-month decline <laughs> and uh, thought this country is, you know, going to be really damaged by this. And then I sort of grew up and I thought, look, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. We're going to be fine. Uh, and we, we, for the last 40 years, we've been in this, in this group of nations, uh, but for it, we lasted a lot longer before that. And we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. How can I make this work for the best? And so I didn't go into the sort of Anna Soubry, um, Dominic Grieve, angry, uh, you know, un I, for me, it would have been an unhealthy experience. Uh, I probably wouldn't be here now <laughs> if I'd gone into that sort of, you know, I follow Anna on Twitter. Oh, dear, to be that angry every day and that sort of you know it, it just couldn't be good for you so i decided to try and be constructive and um you know supported the government the best way i could but i just as it came through to that last summer i was i, I was convinced by conversations with people close to dominic cummings that we were that, that the government's intention was to have no deal and um it wasn't enhanced by a meeting that we had a number 10 and it just seems uh, so long ago, but it, it, it was, you know, and it, it to decide when you're warned that if you vote this way, you will lose the party whip. Um, I, you know, it was not something I, I'd ever done. I'm a natural loyalist. I, 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 I'd been on the front bench for, you know, eight or nine years. I had been, um, and I never found a reason to rebel except for tiny little minor things. Uh, and so it was quite a moment. Um, and what struck me, and I came from a, I come from a constituency that voted marginally Remain, um, and uh, suddenly it was rather big news, and I had lots of media, and I, you know, people besieging me in my office and various things. It was, it was, it was, at, at the same time, it was uplifting and, you know, sort of almost the opposite. At, you know, it was total paradoxical time. Um, and I then, you know, sat on the government benches, supported the government in every way I could, but absolutely under, in the belief that I'd, I'd done the right thing for myself. And maybe I, you know, 
maybe history has said I was wrong. I don't know. We will find out in due course. But what you know, what has impressed me is that firstly, the, just before I left Parliament, we, the Prime Minister got me and others in, said, "Look, you know, we'll put this behind us." And um, and I've always got on with Boris. He was my neighbouring MP. I've known him uh, since he was a journalist, and I was a wannabe politician. And um, we've always got on. We, he always makes me laugh, and um, we, we've had some extraordinary experiences where, where, where you know, where I've I've witnessed him, you know, electrifying an audience. I've actually witnessed him dying on his ass in front of an audience. Um, but then we've all done that. Uh, but he was actually. And to, now to ask me to be in the House of Lords as a Conservative peer, uh, you know, I think shows a sort of bigness that some people feel. Bigness? I sound like, is that, is that a word? Bigly. Like Should Trump, be. Anyway. Trump uses that kind of word. But it shows a sort of um, a, a, a willing, willingness to understand he leads a party of that is a, a large, broad spectrum. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, the same time I'm going to the House of Lords, I'm going alongside Dan Hannan, who's a you know, had different views to me on Europe, all these great friend. And, um, you know, I think that shows the kind of party that Boris wants to lead. And I just hope that this awful time in British politics is now behind us. Yeah, it is definitely a really good sign. Because I think that was one of the, the things for lots of liberal conservatives, you know, who might not have been as passionate about Brexit, but saw a lot of those MPs that they associated themselves with or really liked the politics of uh, just more generally being kicked out that way was obviously it was a very difficult time um and so what what was your experience you know how did colleagues react it must have been totally bizarre I mean you say it was a nightmare like reliving a nightmare but what, what was that I, like? I talked to others at the time and said look you know I'm, I'm a bit nervous about sort of you know just imposing an atmosphere if I just go into the tea room for my usual cup of coffee in the morning um and sit down with them and he said to me no you know of course you must um you, you know we, we're not we mustn't hide away so I did and most people I, I can't remember a single you know you know people some people were very disappointed by what I did and told me so uh, but everybody remained friendly and I, I was thinking that I've seen in politics the people who survive times like that so people have built up a um a, a reserve of goodwill and i you know i've always there were people for whom i profoundly disagreed but i could have a civilized conversation with uh, you know on the far right of, of my party or people in the other parties for whom you know who, who want to see people like me <laughs> cast into outer darkness but they there's a humanity to them which you must latch onto. and i'm not saying i do it well i'm not saying i but i think i had built up a reserve which allowed me to tap into uh, uh, people's good nature. And, um, you know, Parliament is, is a very human place. Uh, and it's a, it's a place where weakness and strength are there at its rawest. Uh, and you see people in absolute moments of despair and you see people in absolute moments of triumph. Uh, and that's part of its attractions, part of its, the drug that drives people onto, into politics and keeps them there. Uh, and in moments of whether they call it adversity or self-imposed adversity in my case, um, it, it was just a, just very interesting to see people's reactions, and most of them were really kind. 
And how did how did you get to that decision? I mean, you must have spoken, uh, t- known from I each t- other that you were doing it, or how much of it was sort of... <laughs> I, I will tell you that the, the, the pivotal moment was um, at the meeting in number 10, Boris had had a very reasonable conversation with a colleague and said, I think that's, an, that's a good idea. Would you take that up with Dom, Dominic Cummings? And my... my um, friend took this up with Don Cummings and, and there was a sort of sigh on the on the end of the line he said you, you don't understand I, I I mean I, I'm not this is not exact transfer he said but he said you people have had your day um you're all going to be driven out of the party and um we're going to get in people who who and we're going to drive towards and he said she said the words we're going to deliver a no deal Brexit and it's going to be a I think he's a no deal I think he's going to deliver a hard Brexit and you, you people will be gone. And I, th- and I thought, wow, uh, that's that is extraordinary. And I've only ever had not much reserve there, is there? Very few conversations with Dominic Cummings. But I mean, that that sort of flipped me over. I suppose I thought, wow. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting, interesting. So. Um, some quick fire questions. Oh God, these are these are always the hardest. Particularly <laughs> for someone that um, as me. Um, well, let's start off with um, who is your favourite non-conservative politician? My favourite non-conservative politician. Um, the, the best speech I have ever heard in Parliament, without doubt, was by Hillary Benn. It was. In the Syria debate, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn had just had led off uh, the opposition saying why we shouldn't support the government uh, in extending um, air operations into Syria. And he finished with this extraordinary um, speech, of which had Labour MPs behind him in tears. And one of the Eagle sisters, I think it was Angela Eagle, um, with tears streaming down her face when he sat down, he'd given this extraordinary exposition about why. Labour was an internationalist party and not afraid to take tough decisions when uh, needed to attack tyranny and um, uh, 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 and protect people's lives. And and at the end, when he sat down, the whole chamber erupted, and she leant across Jeremy Corbyn with tears running down her cheeks and squeezed his arm. It's one of those moments I'll never forget. He was also a really nice person to deal with when he was environment secretary and I was in opposition. Um, so I, a great fan of his, lots of others, Dan Jarvis, uh, I could name a great many. Caroline Flint, I adore Caroline Flint. She was on the Intelligence Committee with me, um, and she's just a legend. Uh, give me three. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very good. Um, and what is one of the most striking anecdotes that you've experienced uh, or one of the most striking experience that you've encountered uh, whilst being an MP or minister? I, gosh, I, I suppose the, the most sort of human uh, and moving experience is uh, um, uh, in a constituency setting when people come to see you um, and they, you're their last hope and too often you can't do anything about it and sometimes you can and I have you know I, people say oh MPs are so out of touch well you know you've got to be a pretty you've got to be a real 
dullard to be out of touch um, as an MP because you have sitting across your table some of the main and so, so yeah I mean I've I've come across uh, people I you know a, a war widow here we are justice for Gillian um, she her husband had, had been shot in the legs in Burma in the war and he lived for another three decades in agony and died in penury in South Africa and the British government hadn't paid his pension, his war widow's pension to her. And she came to live in Newbury without a penny. And she was the most dignified, wonderful person you can meet. And with an amazing guy who had fought alongside her husband in Burma, we ran this campaign and we got after three ministers, um, we'd been to see eventually one of them, Derek Twigg, realized that something had gone wrong and he changed it and she got her warder's pension and for the next 10 years till she died she had that money that she deserved and it was truly moving to see someone of such dignity uh, facing mm -hmm. such adversity and winning through and that was joy that's brilliant yeah yeah and um what uh what is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, don't do up your shoelaces in a revolving door. Um, <laughs> I, th I, think, I think the best advice, political advice I was given was um, that compromise is not a dirty word. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, I think it was my father who, who strongly believed. He said, if you go into politics and you stick rigidly to your view, you leave politics unhappy because your chances are you've achieved nothing. If you're prepared to work with people on the other, other side of the argument, you can often achieve something and better, better to have half a loaf than no loaf at all. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that anybody going into politics now and realize that it is not a, you know, a, 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 a game of extremes. It's a game of compromise and achieving something by being, uh, whilst being true to your principles. So I think that's probably the best advice I was given. Mm. And so what's next for you? Obviously you're about to go into the House of Lords um, and I know you're involved with my um, dear friend's company, Seahorse Environmental, uh, which does fantastic work around environmental campaigns. But yeah. I'm loving that. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, Isabella Gornell set up this company not that long ago and it's just grown and it's full of young clever people and we are expanding from running campaigns and doing um, advice for, uh, for for companies to auditing companies for ESG for environmental social governance um, and looking at their entire supply chain and uh, this uh, and you know the, the, this company just being with these young clever people who really mind I love being around people who mind about anything uh, but particularly in environmental matters to, uh, is just wonderful mm. so I'll be doing that I'm, I'm advising a couple of other companies I, I run my family business and now I've got uh, uh, the added interest of um, being involved in the in the House of Lords and uh, so 2021 is looking very exciting. Um, this curse of COVID um, will lift. 
and we will be able to see each other and meet in person uh, in a way that we haven't in 2020. And so I'm really looking forward to this year. Um, and one of my sons is getting married. So uh, in all these uh, things, it's a good, it's good to put 2020 behind us and to look forward to 2021. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining. What were you thinking? It's been a real pleasure. Well, it's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Now, I would also love to hear about the people and places that have inspired you. So please share your stories via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Or you can also use the hashtag WWYT. Now, this series is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival and you can become a friend of a Big Tent and receive the first three months completely free by entering the special coupon code PODCAST. Friends benefit from invitations to exclusive, intimate events with politicians and leaders and much, much more. So visit bigtent.org.uk for further details and to join. This is the end of Series 2, but I have some brilliant guests lined up already for Series 3. So bear with me. Don't go anywhere. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and see you very soon.